Welcome to Fully Vested. I'm Amory Polden. And I'm Joshua Minsk. And we're your co-hosts. Fully Vested. Today's guest is Dirk Salma from SAS Group. Dirk, welcome. Great to have you on the pod. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Really looking forward to the session today. Great stuff. So first off, can you tell us a little bit about SAS Group and, uh, and what you guys do? Yes, so SaaS Group is a SaaS portfolio company. So uh, we are acquiring SaaS companies uh, between 1 and 10 million AR and group them under the SaaS Group umbrella to, to leverage synergies. And uh, that's what we've been doing in the last five years and are now at the size of uh, 50 million portfolio AR, uh, 17 companies under the umbrella, and yeah, plan to do further acquisitions in the future. Okay, so... SaaS Group is a software roll-up. You're acquiring and consolidating SME SaaS companies. And how are you yourself structured? Are you a fund or a company? How do you pay for these acquisitions? And how do you guys really differentiate? There's so many different roll-up plays out there at the moment in, in every conceivable ecosystem uh, following every conceivable type of strategy. So where do you guys differ? Yeah, so compared to uh, other acquirers, I think we have a small advantage uh, because the founders are tech entrepreneurs themselves. They had uh, exits previously with their former companies. And so they had budget available to do the first acquisitions themselves. And so we didn't need to, to raise money. So it's not that typical fund structure you would see in the private equity space. So it's really a private company still. And our cap table is quite clean. Compared to other acquirers, a lot of private equity players are focusing on vertical software because it tends to be stickier. And it's, of course, better to maybe build a platform in a certain vertical, uh, while we are focusing on more horizontal businesses and, and more low-touch uh, sales models rather than very niche software and, and enterprise software. And what's the ultimate objective or, or, or exit plan here for SaaS Group? Is it an IPO or a, a sale of the whole group via M&A or... Do you plan to bundle up companies within the group and, and sell them off as distinct packages? Yeah, so, so first of all, uh, we have a long-term goal. And that's also a promise we give to founders that sell to us, that we take care of their baby and keep it for the for the long term. So we are not flipping businesses, the kind of private equity model, uh, model acquiring, improving, selling. So we are acquiring, improving, but keeping it. Um, and as you said, we have optionality and I think for a long time, we lacked a clear vision, uh, but there are two options right now. Uh, the one is IPO in a few years from now, but no rush. Uh, I think with 50 million ARR, it's a bit too early, maybe with 150 or 200, but let's see. And the other thing could be to sell the whole SaaS group, like as a whole group to a bigger private equity firm at some point. But yeah, still no clear plan, uh, no timeline for the time being. We're just continuing on the current path. What you guys are doing reminds me a little bit of Andrew Wilkinson's Tiny in the US where they acquire companies and they kind of follow the Warren Buffett value investing approach where they absorb and manage those companies. Do you guys view yourself in that kind of light? And was there any inspiration there? The inspiration comes more from maybe Constellation Software, uh, which is a Canadian uh, publicly trading company and not so much from Tiny. Tiny started a bit earlier than SaaS Group, yes. And I think for a long time, we've been direct competitors and even bid for the same companies in some deals. However, I think in the meantime, they were deviating from their original strategy. So they added e-commerce companies, more like B2C companies to their portfolio, companies uh, with hardware involved, subscription boxes or something, where we always kept our focus on SaaS. So I think, yes, for a long time, we've been direct competitors. Now, not so much anymore. Can you talk us through the profile 
of uh, of an ideal target company for SaaS Group in terms of the traction, profitability, other key metrics of those businesses, and if you look for anything in terms of specific sectors or, or, or locations for those businesses? I would say we are still quite flexible, and it's also dynamic, so we're constantly changing and adjusting our investment scope as we grow. But what we prefer are bootstrapped or I would say in a broader sense, capital efficient SaaS companies, founder-led companies, and the, the revenue size, preferably between one and 10 million. But I would say strong sweet spot is between two and maybe six million AR. We require break-even status, preferably profitability. And I think kind of our core KPI is rule of 40. So we're trying to find companies that are on the rule of 40. So profitability, uh, profit margin and, and growth rate combined. Uh, this is also a KPI we are using internally to benchmark our portfolio companies. Yeah, so profitability, founder-led, two to six million AR. And as I said in the beginning, we focus on PLG, so product-led growth companies where potential customers can try out the product before they buy. However, I have to admit that we became a bit more flexible. So in our portfolio, you may also see uh, some products that are a bit more enterprisey. It's quite an interesting focus and I think has some similarities to what we do at D2. Something that we've often tussled with internally is how you find these kinds of companies, right? Companies that are bootstrapped of a couple of million of ARR, they don't tend to exist within the same ecosystem and don't play in the same spaces that big venture-backed companies typically do. How do you guys think about sourcing these companies? And also, is there ever any overlap where you will invest in a company that has been venture-backed previously and you'll kind of restructure things so that it works for you? I would say my job is basically being the truffle pig that goes out and finds the ones that are flying under the radar because the ones that are listed on Crunchbase that are active on LinkedIn and every other platform, they are being contacted by buyers every day. And we have kind of a data-driven approach. We acquired a data scraping company two years ago, which we're using ourselves. So we're constantly monitoring product comparison platforms, review platforms, big marketplaces, HubSpot marketplace, Salesforce marketplace, and so on. And then we are enriching that data and try to filter out based on our criteria. So is there external funding? When was the last funding round? Is it bootstrapped? What's their pricing? Do they have a PLG approach and so on? And then we are trying to narrow it down and just reach out. And yeah, you find a lot of these companies. My goal is to find the ones that are flying under the radar and it requires some efforts actually. Most roll-ups source a lot of referral deal flow from recruiters, accountants, bankers, etc. So, you know, the majority of the deals just, just come to them. SaaS Group seems to follow a different sort of more content-led approach. You post a lot of great material on LinkedIn, for example. Are the majority of your deals inbound or outbound? Yeah, so when I would be joking about the private equity space, I would say most buyers have a website with like a nice skyline and some old male people in suits and they're not doing any brand strategy or PR or anything and they, they just hope that uh, companies will come to them or maybe they are doing some outbound strategies that are not converting that well. And that's how SaaS Group actually started as well. So when I started in 2020, we also had that website and I had to build it up from scratch and it was 100% outbound. So nobody came to us uh, just because we had a website. In the meantime, it changed. The LinkedIn stuff was not something I came up with to improve our uh, inbound deal flow, but rather to develop a habit for myself to learn more about SaaS uh, and M&A because I had a long reading list and I never got to, to read that stuff. And so LinkedIn helped me to digest and share. 
over time, it developed in a really nice channel for deal flow. So I would say the proportion of inbound deal flow has been constantly increasing uh, since I started posting on LinkedIn. Yeah, it now makes up maybe 10 to 20%, but still vast majority is, is outbound uh, because founders never think of, okay, I sell, now I, I reach out to SaaS Group. So you have to like plant that seed and build up the relationship over time for them to come back to you once the time has come. What's the lead time like on a deal? Do you find that the majority of the companies that you are speaking with are looking for an acquisition? If so, are they normally in, in the right sort of state or is this a case of waiting game? Or, or conversely, do you think that most of the companies you engage with are not actively looking for an exit at that time and are sort of thinking ahead saying, okay, well, a year, sort of 18 months, maybe two years out, we could be ready for this. And you're sort of coaching them through that and kind of building that relationship over time. At the beginning, when I started, we didn't even track funnel KPIs because it was more important to generate D-flow at all rather than having a transparent funnel. Uh, so we just started tracking these funnel KPIs a few months ago, so I don't have the full picture yet. And I think it's not as predictable as a sales funnel. So you cannot say, okay, I need to send out 1,000 emails and this brings me five deals. So that's not how it goes. And I'm following a very long-term approach. So most of the conversations I have, they end up in a deal maybe after one year, two years, or even three years. So it takes some time. And my goal is also to get in touch with founders early on. For example, I get an email every day with seed investments in SaaS companies. And I reach out with congratulations to their seed rounds and just try to get in touch immediately. Because as we all know, most of the SaaS companies will never make it to IPO. And so this is already where I try to like get in touch and, and make the connection. And do you care about potential market size? And so how big a company or an acquisition could become? Or is past traction really the relevant metric for you guys? I would say both factors play a role, but uh, definitely the past traction is or the past performance is more important to us than market size because you can look up our portfolio. Most of the companies are in very competitive markets. We have a CRM product. We have marketing tools, productivity tools, and so on. So they are all in very competitive spaces. But as long as they were able to grow like 20%, 25% year over year in the last couple of years, we expect them to grow at a decent pace in the future. Future. And so this is definitely more important to us than uh, a certain market growth. I think this is more important for vertical market uh, software acquirers. I just want to come back for a moment on the target company profile point. So you mentioned at the start of the pod that you look for businesses that are turning over between two and six million a year. There is a massive difference in, in my mind between companies at either end of that range. So companies with, let's say, one to two million of revenue, depending on how quickly they got there, there is a huge amount of uncertainty in those businesses in terms of what they're going to ultimately become. Are they going to go on and make 100 million a year in revenue or are they going to broadly flatline from where they are at the moment? And as you get later in that range, you know, towards the sort of six million and even up to kind of double digit millions, it becomes much more certain. So it's it, it, depending again on how long the company's taken to reach that point, you have a long operating history, that business is much more of a known quantity. And there's a big implication there in terms of valuation expectations. So one might expect that the business that's later stage, there is a very tight band there of valuation expectations, because everybody can see what that business is. Whereas at the earlier stages, you know, when you've got a couple of million of revenue, again, this because of that uncertainty, the potential range in valuations that those businesses can command is massively, massively different. And I wonder how you guys deal with that uh, and how that informs your focus. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I'm seeing as well. And that's why we have this sweet spot on like two to six million AR because the higher it gets, like if it gets towards 10 million and beyond, I think it's getting very competitive because as you know, everyone sees the traction and everyone wants to buy this company because if you can grow it to 10 million, you can probably grow it to 15 and beyond. And so this is a space where we would compete with big private equity players and that's not what we want. And the smaller it gets, I think there's still a decent risk of failure or a risk of not having reached product market fit. I, For example, I've seen a couple of JetGBT related businesses that got to 1 million, 2 million ARR in just three months or so. Nobody knows how sustainable this is, but probably not as sustainable as companies that have taken three years to get there. And so we would like to see a track record of three to five years at least to say, okay, this has been a sustainable growth and this is an opportunity for us. And also with smaller businesses, you don't have a large safety margin. So for example, if you have like a team of five people running a 500k ARR company, you cannot run a lot of experiments because then you may need to invest additional uh, money or it would just go bust. And so this is kind of the sweet spot where I think expectations are reasonable most of the time and it's also a spot where good companies founder-led bootstrapped very often are running in a saturation why because these founders are often like the indie hacker type of persons and so they don't like to run a big company with like hundreds of employees like the vc funded companies out there and so they are limiting themselves in growth because uh, they don't want to hire more people they don't want to grow the team they're also not very good at delegating and so this is kind of the sweet spot for us where we see a lot of these companies where we see okay they are under optimized the founder just doesn't feel comfortable running such a big company etc etc and so this is the reason why we pick that range Dirk, can you walk us through an example of an acquisition that you guys are proud of or one that happened recently so that our listeners can get a better feel for the type of companies that you guys are interested in and what your process looks like as you go through it? Um, yeah, so we are proud of every acquisition. I don't want to highlight one of them, but maybe to get back to what I previously said, we just acquired a company called UserSnap. So uh, it's a user feedback tool. And if you go to the website, if you do some research, it perfectly fits our scope in terms of team size, in terms of product. So it's horizontal product, it's PLG. It has opportunity to upsell or uh, to sell to enterprise clients as well. It has a team of, I think, around 15 people or so. It's based in, in Austria, headquartered in Austria. I got in touch in 2020 with the founder. They were not looking for an exit yet. We had a chat. I told them a bit more about SaaS Group, told me a bit more about the business, and we just kept in touch. Then we just followed up on a quarterly basis or maybe six-month cadence. When they were looking for an exit, we didn't come to agreement in terms of valuation. So they also had some VCs on their cap table. And they were always looking for like a higher multiple. And I said, yeah, it's fine. No rush on our end. We, we just keep in touch. And over time, they got more inquiries from buyers. Uh, they looked at other buyers. They looked at other offers. I think they even kicked off a process with another buyer and never got far. Then they finally got back to us saying, hey, your uh, approach uh, was the best I've seen in the past three years. Let's sign an NDA. You will get some data from us and then we kick off a process. And so this is the kind of this I personally like because they explored the market. They talked to other buyers and 
they ultimately decided that we stood out for whatever reason. Of course, we, we also see broker deals that come to us, but then it's already clear, okay, uh, the founders are looking to sell and they are now running a competitive process. And so, yeah, we were finally able to, to find agreement and they just joined the family a few weeks ago. Maybe to also tell you a bit more about the process. So once the founders are ready or the owners uh, are ready to sell, we would have an intro call just discussing expectations, learning a bit more about their preferences. What I also should mention is we are very flexible in terms of structuring the deal. So founders can stay post-sale, they can leave. If they stay, they can decide for how long that will be. We can have a higher earner uh, proportion, a smaller earner proportion. So intro call to figure out expectations and, and preferences. Then we would sign an NDA, then we would ask for, for KPIs and, and financials. And the first step is always to give them a price indication because it's always that big elephant in the room. What do I get for my business? And this will happen after roughly two weeks. And once they say, okay, we are in a zone of agreement, we would work together with people from our central team. Uh, so they are marketing experts, HR experts, and so on. And they will already talk to the founders and figure out, okay, where can we help? What are the challenges? Is this a good fit? And this is kind of a soft due diligence we are running, and it takes another two to three weeks. Uh, in the meantime, we would decide on concrete deal terms, sign an LOI, and then there's another three to four weeks of, of due diligence before closing the deal. So in total, six to eight weeks, two weeks until uh, initial offer, another two to three weeks until LOI, another three to four weeks until closing. Nice. I mean, that's a pretty clean process in comparison to some other firms, especially PE firms. You mentioned there that the company that you just acquired had VCs on the cap table. Do you consider VCs on the cap table to be an impediment or a benefit when you're looking at a company? I would say rather the former. However, we wouldn't exclude them. So from our experience, if they raised VC in the last round has been like five plus years ago, fine, I guess. But if they have raised a lot of VC and the last round is maybe two years ago and they now struggle to raise a follow-on round and then reach out to us, sometimes it's a fit, but very often it's not because the VCs invested on a steep valuation. If you go back to 2020, 2021, they raised money on 20x ARR. They are now looking to get as much back as possible. They may have pretty steep expectations and getting everyone to the table on terms is pretty hard, at least from my experience. But of course, it's not a deal breaker. It's just a matter of expectations. And, and, and where, where are you guys in terms of valuation? And, and you know, what's the relevant metric that you consider? Is it, is it a revenue multiple? Is it a multiple of EBITDA, multiple of net profit? And what do those kind of ranges look like? I mean, internally, we are doing a comprehensive analysis and also have our hypothesis on where we see the business and how it will develop in the future. So we will always look at IRR, ROIC metrics, or the typical private equity return metrics. And our offer will usually be like a total package or, or an ARR multiple. In the past, we've paid between 0.5x to 10x ARR. Very broad, but I would say most of the companies we see uh, or most of the smaller SaaS companies in general are in the 2 to 4x bracket. If we issue offers, I think they are usually in that, in that range. Okay, so that's, that's very consistent with conventional PE type strategy of sort of multiple expansion, isn't it? In terms of, okay, I'm going to buy low, I'm going to sell high, I'm hoping that the kind of the sum of the parts 
you know, my entire portfolio is going to command a more premium multiple because of scale, because of synergies, et cetera. Even absent any growth, I'm going to make money just on the multiple expansion, which is helpful. It's, it's really, really useful to, to place you guys. Yeah. As I said, a lot of these businesses are, are under-optimized and there's a, a really big opportunity. Sometimes they did the price increase themselves. Sometimes they're already doing some kind of marketing, but I think it's always good to let someone else look at the setup and try to improve it. As I said, we have that central team. I think it has grown to over 50 people now in different departments and they are ready to help our portfolio brands in DevOps matters, marketing related stuff, HR, we have finance accounting, support and sales. Yeah, most of the companies we see have like 15 people and so they may not have a full-time role in every department. And how much do you think about synergies when you're looking at a new company? So in terms of saying, okay, there's a cross-sell opportunity here, similar customer base to a few of our other companies. So therefore this, you know, maybe commands a slightly higher multiple for us because it's, 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 it's strategic for us, you know, or is that something that you're not even really focusing on, on the way and, and it is an unexpected upside if it happens? When we are evaluating a business, it's always in an isolated way. So it has to make sense as a standalone business. And we're not building any models about uh, cross-selling opportunities and how that may potentially work out. I've never made the experience myself, but from the founder's experience, they say it never works out as good as you would model it in Excel. And so there are synergies and there are also synergies that are already happening, but currently they're more in the back end. So for example, they have the same payment provider, they have the same cloud hosting provider and so on. And so you're getting better terms in this regard. And then you have shared resources through that central team. However, in the long term, we also want to leverage synergies like the ones you mentioned. So cross-selling, upselling. That's why we are planning to build internal clusters in the long term. Because, of course, it, it doesn't make much sense to own 100 businesses without any visible synergies. So you may have a data cluster, you may have a productivity tool cluster, a dev tool cluster. But our deal origination is not based on these clusters yet. So we are still quite opportunistic. So you're getting, you're getting cost synergies today, which is obvious, and then you work towards the revenue synergies over time. And that cluster approach makes sense. And you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious, you know, what is the kind of the 100-day plan that you run through any company that you guys have just acquired? You know, what are the kind of first steps as a new owner of a business um, do you guys always put in place? The good thing with us is that we try to keep the owners on board, at least for a certain period. And so there's no need for us to get involved in a pushy way and like taking over everything. The most important part for us is to connect them with the internal tools, to properly onboard them, explain them our processes, how it all works. But it's not comparable to a strategic acquirer where they need to yeah, integrate the product into their own product suite or something. So it's really just plugging it into the SaaS group family uh, rather than working on deep integrations that are product related or so. 100-day plan is usually like simple things, connecting them to Slack and Asana and all these tools we're using internally, Google Workspace, then welcoming the team, having first conversations uh, with the employees because usually the employees will get to know us at closing because the founders don't tell them before. And then in the due diligence, we are always trying to build a custom-made project plan, how we can help the business in the maybe first year. This highly depends on the business and where are the main challenges and how does their product roadmap look like. Sometimes first priority is working on the pricing. In other companies, it may be HR related. So hiring for additional roles. Sometimes it's, it's marketing related. So it depends on where we see the biggest impact on where we can add the most value. 
And do you ever have cross-pollination? So management or team members from one company work on one of your other portfolio companies. Is there that sort of intermingling across the group? Or is everyone sort of sticking in their silos of, okay, you know, I came over with company A, I stay with company A, you guys over in company C, you know, we're friends, we have the same owner, but that's as far as it gets. It's a mix for the time being. Uh, of course, the management stays in place. They stay with their company. But as we grow, of course, we also create career opportunities for people that are working for SaaS Group. So for example, the CMO of Git Tower, uh, a company we acquired two years ago, he now became SaaS Group brand CMO. So he's overseeing uh, several companies in terms of marketing. What you will see is that management people or people from brands will transition into central roles, but it's not that team members from one company will work for a completely other product unless there's a wish of the employee to change places. Gotcha. Okay. And then in terms of incentive structures, and you touched on this earlier, presumably, you know, people are getting a stake in, in SaaS group as a whole. And so you're incentivizing people to continue working on the broader group and the benefit of the broader group. I'm really curious in terms of, you know, if that's the case, if you're giving equity, how on earth are you deciding what the value of SaaS group is at that stage, right? Like, okay, we had 20 million ARR before now it's 50 million ARR, you know, companies that you're acquiring now are underwriting your value every single time. You see that with a lot of strategic acquirers, they are putting a high valuation on theirs. Take Getir and Gorillas if you go back to the quick commerce wave. So you're getting equity of a company that is worth like 8 billions on paper. I would never agree to such a deal. And what we never do is offering an equity swap in our initial offer unless it's desired by the founders. However, a lot of founders that sold to us and that were able to look behind the curtains and they have seen that we are growing healthy, sustainably, we are profitable and how it all works and how the company is set up, they were requesting if they could park some money of their exit proceeds in SaaS Group because we've never done a funding round, so there is no paper valuation. And so we usually let them uh, sign a simple standard safe. So you can postpone that whole valuation discussion. So this is kind of speaking to the process of how you guys go about acquiring and, and how you get those funds. Do you guys use debt when you're acquiring companies? And if not now, like, is that a long-term plan? Yeah, so we're already using that to, to leverage deals. In the beginning, the first three companies were bought uh, by exit proceeds from the founders. So they bought it out of their own pockets. In the meantime, we signed some debt facilities. Yeah, with them, we can leverage acquired EBTA. That's why I said we require profitability so we couldn't buy companies that are still losing money unless there's an opportunity to make them profitable on day one or in the first few days. Compared to traditional private equity players, I think we still have some room when it comes to leverage. So we're not leveraging it uh, to the fullest yet. And how does that leverage work in something like this, where there's a lot of individual risk at the company level? And so, you know, are these kind of corporate facilities where it says, okay, we will lend according to your EBITDA and you know, every single yeah. new company that you acquire, you need to kind of run past us and make sure it satisfies these metrics? Or is it kind of deal by deal where like, all right, we will lend you, you know, 2 million or 3 million to acquire this particular business? Yeah, so we signed a bigger facility with a German lender. It's called RAG Foundation. They have that facility, they have a certain limit. So we're now running into these limits. That's why we may be looking to raise additional funds and, and sign some new facilities. But they provided us a certain level of depth and we could draw from that depth on a deal by deal basis. But we all always had to provide like an investment memo and they gave like thumbs up, thumbs down. So far, they never gave a thumbs down. So I, I think they are fine with what we're doing. But this is how it currently works. And so we don't have to raise 
debt for every deal or have to pitch um, every investment. Even if we wouldn't have these debt facilities, we are now at 70 companies. As I said, 15 million portfolio ARR, decent profitability. So we could also do deals from our cash flow, although it might limit us in the terms of deal size. Interesting. And thinking about the Constellation softwares of the world that you mentioned earlier, what can we learn from the guys that have been in this game for a long time in terms of what works and what doesn't? And I'm also curious in terms of, are there elements of Constellation's model that translates over to the European market really well? And are there other elements which which don't, where there's a sort of a local specific flavor to things? So I tend to say we are the modern version of, of Constellation software because I mean, they started acquiring and grouping businesses long before we even started. Uh, so I think they started in the 90s or even 80s. They are focusing on, on vertical niche software. Very often companies that have a succession problem. So founder approaching retirement age and uh, not having someone to take over. I think what you can learn from them is that they are very strict in their valuation model. Uh, so I've heard that uh, because I talked to founders that were also talking to Constellation. Once it hits a certain limit in terms of price expectations, they just can't compete. And then it's fine. They just say no and move on. Uh, so I think you can learn from them to be also very strict. And we've seen it at SaaS Group as well. So you can fall in love with a product and with a company. But if the expectations are too high, you will never get to a deal. So you just have to say no and move on. There are other uh, nice businesses. And I think what you can learn from, although it's not my field of expertise, is how to cluster and how to group the companies. We are also following their example when we now um, try to figure out how we structure a SaaS group going forward. And, you know, speaking to the points around like discipline, what entry prices are and all of that, you know, the market went kind of crazy between 2020 and 2021 and came crashing down in 2022. You guys operated throughout that time. So how did you see acquisition offers changing over that period of time? How did it affect the number of deals you guys were doing? And what's that outlook been like over the last two, three years? I would say it was a bit more challenging for me because when I was talking to founders, either they got acquisition offers for a higher multiple before, or they knew a friend that just sold his, her business for a 20x. And so it was hard to convince them, hey, this is not what a typical buyer would put on the table for your business, even though the business was declining, flat, losing money, whatever. So just not good looking. They were requesting high multiples and uh, it was hard for me to convince them that this is not what their business is worth. And so now we're getting back to more reasonable expectations where we had headwinds in, in 2020, 21, and we're still uh, able to make some deals. Now we are, I think, sailing with tailwinds. So now we also see a lot of VC-funded companies where the VCs say, okay, it's fine. We just want to have some liquidity, even though it's not the multiple we paid. And so we see an increasing number of VC-funded companies that just don't get any more funding and are now looking for options. Some already managed to get profitable, some didn't. But these create nice opportunities for us because now the expectations are at a reasonable level. Plus, now the founders of Bootstrap Capital Efficient Businesses also understand, okay, uh, 2 to 4x is kind of the range where these kind of businesses are being sold. And uh, I think we're now back to normal. Where do you see that going in the future? You know, we're in this kind of stable period now where, at least on the VC side, I think more funds are increasingly doing more deals again after a long period of stasis. You know, what do you think happens in the market? And do you think those kinds of 2021 prices ever come back? Or do you think we've kind of corrected to the mean and people will have learned their lesson? 
I mean, if, if you look at generative AI deals, uh, sometimes you may think, okay, we are going back to the steep multiples we've seen in 2020, 2021, because VCs tend to have FOMO and don't want to, to miss out on opportunities. However, what we've seen in the M&A space, it's just getting back to normal. So you see that trend going from like 2010, maybe, and then it's like this in 2021. And now it's just back to the trend um, that we had until COVID. And if you look at the acquisition multiples of the businesses we were talking about, they've been more or less the same for the last couple of years. So they never changed much. It was always like two to four X, maybe two to five X. And also the profit multiples, I think they were between four to maybe eight, but never like strong deviations in either direction. But now I think founders understand it. And in 2021, 2020, they thought, okay, yes, it's always been the same, but now we can request a higher multiple. There must be quite a few scenarios that you encounter of venture back businesses that have raised so much money that just paying back the liquidation preference of the VCs takes up almost all of the entire acquisition offer. And then you've got a weird situation because you then own a business with a founder that's staying on that hasn't really taken any money out of that excess. You've got a bunch of VCs that then leave the cap table. Does that then create a huge hangover and headache for you guys where you've got a team that's really disillusioned that's like, okay, wow, this wasn't what we thought it was going to be and we've got no cash from it? It's actually a fine line. And um, if you get back to that liquidation preference topic, generally speaking, you have to convince the founder to sell the business for a very low multiple because the lower he sells for, the less money an investor would get and the more money we could put into the incentive package for the founder. You know, you say, okay, yeah, you can now sell for 5x, but then we don't have the budget to build a proper incentive for you. But if you say, okay, you talk to your VCs and you say, yeah, sorry, a SaaS group is offering me a 1x and you sell for 1x, then you can like put a couple of million into the incentive package. But realistically, we, we try to find a good fit for everyone. So our reputation is important, but you know, there's a conflict of interest there and you definitely have to get the founder convinced because in this case, the founder would walk home with zero dollars and would not be incentivized to work just one day longer for the business. And so it's very important for us to build a proper package, to have a proper earnout that is tied to certain milestones. And then we would work together with the founder for yeah the next 12 to 24 months or even longer. Really, really tricky situation there. And then I'm just curious in terms of, of the 17 companies that you've acquired, how many were bootstrapped, how many were venture-backed, and you know, how many were sort of lightly funded? We acquired a company called Zenloop this year. We bought them out of insolvency. Uh, so they were heavily VC-backed. Uh, during peak times, they were at roughly 100 employees. Now they are back to 15. I think the impact on revenue is neglectable. So you've seen that you can reset companies and you may think, okay, if you throw out half of the team, uh, it will be impacting the revenue. It does not. In this case, unfortunately, we had to do it because otherwise the company uh, wouldn't have a chance to survive. But yeah, this company was venture-backed. A French company, uh, Cross Talent, bought at the end of last year. They were also VC-backed. Bcast, another French company we bought this year, also VC-backed. So I think uh, four companies. So that's four companies out of 17 were VC-backed. And then the rest were either fully bootstrapped or you know maybe had some angel financing or something in there somewhat guilty of, of talking our own book here but i'm curious in terms of whether or not you think there is this missing gap in the funding ecosystem and, and if that is 
part of the opportunity that you're exploiting. And so it strikes me that in the range that you're playing in, you know, this one to 10 million mark with companies growing, let's call it sort of 20 to 50%, they are not growing sufficiently quickly for venture capital funds. And maybe they've kind of missed the whole venture carousel, right? They didn't get on it early. And so then, you know, they start becoming self-sustaining and there's no reason to get on it later. And yet they don't yet have enough EBITDA to be private equity backed. And so there is this chasm. And that's the point where you guys are coming in. Is that is that fair to say? Or, or, or do you find yourself, you know, when you're approaching these companies competing with minority investors, you say, no, 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 this is a really interesting business. You know, we don't want to take you out. We just want to invest. So is it competing with other acquirers or is it competing with potential investors? It changed a bit in 2020, 2021. It was interesting for me to see that we lost some deals to VC firms because usually you either decide to exit or you decide to go big or go home and raise around. But it's not something you run in parallel. So it's that I think that's that's black and white. And um, I'm always find it interesting if founders say, yeah, we raise around. But if it doesn't work out, we might be open for M&A because these are a completely different path, in my opinion. And we lost some deals to Tiger Global, for example. Yeah surprisingly so instead of selling they decided to raise 10 million round at a steep valuation take a secondary and uh, move on also an interesting approach and now we don't see that so much anymore however what you're saying you said you're talking your 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 own book but i definitely see an opportunity between us and vcs because we are kind of the end game so if someone is looking for an exit in the near future or immediately they should talk to us however there are a lot of companies that are not getting any more VC money because they don't fit their hyper growth game anymore. Or there are companies that say, I would be happy to raise a seed round, but I'm not planning to raise any more money again. And I think there is still a lack of players in the market that fill this gap. I mean, you're trying to fill it. And I think you're now getting also some tailwinds. At least I, I, I hope so. And you have other players. I think we talked uh, about it before the podcast. Tiny Seeds, uh, Calm Company Fund, all these players that are more focusing on bootstrappers that want to build sustainable companies rather than going that hyper-growth VC path. I still think there's a lot of room for, for other players as well. And I think what's more important here is rather than just providing capital and let them run and spend the money is to really add value and advice. So it's often joked about added value in venture capital and very often VC funds are quite hands off. But now I see that SaaS group, how much growth you can achieve if there's really hands on support. So I think there you have really an opportunity to be on the cap table of highly capital efficient businesses. You may not have this outlier power law distribution. So you may have more companies that maybe achieve a 3x, 4x, 5x multiple rather than waiting for that fund return of like 200x. Yeah. And there's other folks um, who've been in the game a long time that, that can talk to those sorts of multiples. I'm curious on that that value add point. This is one where you get very different answers depending upon who you, who you ask. Where do you think the biggest value add is if you could pick kind of one thing for SaaS Group to focus on its acquired companies with? Another fund that we spoke to here that doesn't acquire, they, they invest, but invest at the same stage as you do, said it's all hiring, always about kind of getting what they, they view as A-team players into the company. And, and their logic is, you know, bootstrap businesses never really get to a stage where they can afford an A-team player. And so the point at which you're putting in that first injection of liquidity and you can go out and you can hire that sort of A-team C-suite player, that can then have a huge, huge impact in terms of how you push the business forward. On the other side, they say, well, look, 
sales introducing to customers, etc. It's very, very hard to productize. It's very, very hard to get a kind of standardized experience across a large, large number of portfolio companies such that you can say, okay, yes, we really can help accelerate you. Sometimes you can do it, sometimes you can't. I'm interested if you agree with that or if you have a different perspective. Generally speaking, I have a different view on that. So if you talk to VC funds, uh, I think they will say the same uh, what you just said. So they say, okay, look for A players. And if you don't achieve that hyper growth, you may end up with a small company doing 1 million in AR, but you're not even close to profitability because you have a team of 10 A players earning 200K per year. Congratulations. So it will be hard to make this a, a sustainable company. I guess it depends on the size. So I think in that lower AR region, You should still look for A players, but rather like hungry, ambitious people that are like keen to hustle and, and help you. Because in small startups, you usually have like multiple heads uh, rather than being like just a sales expert or just a marketing expert. And then over time, you may want to hire experts that are able to define processes, have great domain expertise, can build their own teams, etc., etc. So it really, I think it depends on your ambition. So if you want to grow a hundred million ARR company, yes, then you may need to hire A players that have expertise in managing big teams. But I think in our case, for example, we have a few portfolio companies that are approaching 10 million ARR with a team of less than 15 people. It's possible. So it's more about efficiency and looking at every process, trying to optimize and stuff. So I would argue against that eight player mentality, at least for bootstrappers, capital efficient businesses that are never looking to skyrocket to IPO. I guess if I understand your point correctly, what you're saying is it's more around getting a fresh pair of eyes on a business, you know, and that pair of eyes has obviously seen a lot of companies and worked with a lot of companies and saying, okay, well, we've seen that you can cut spend here across multiple businesses, or we've seen you can charge two times as much here. And so it's it's kind of about bringing that, that structural learning and applying all of those sort of micro optimizations across the stack versus making a sort of sweeping statement of, all right, all right we stick in a CRO and everything's great. Yeah. So back to your original question, the biggest growth level we've seen at SaaS Group with the businesses we acquired are marketing and pricing. This is always like top growth levers. And so if we see company hasn't raised prices in the last five years, great. That's an opportunity for us. I mean, it's in the DNA of a bootstrapper to be careful with spending. And so especially in marketing, they are usually under-optimized. They are often doing some content marketing, but that's it. And sometimes they hired a content writer on Fiverr or so. So the content is also just mediocre. They didn't do a proper analysis and all that stuff. So yeah, uh, marketing and pricing are the biggest growth levers for us always. It's so interesting the kind of visibility that you guys get into these different companies, you know, what works, what doesn't. And, you know, just to kind of wrap it up and bring the podcast back home. I mean, you've got these 17 companies, you've seen the end game of hundreds of companies that you've spoken to, and you've probably done case studies on thousands. Having gone through all of this, what kind of advice would you give to founders that are just starting out now? I would say two things. On the one hand, build your business for an exit. If you compare North American founders to European founders, you see a difference there. US founders tend to build for an exit. European founders say, yeah, I don't know yet. Maybe I'll keep it until I retire or die or whatever. And this has an impact on how you run the business. So you may not necessarily have everything cleaned up. You may not track your metrics, etc., etc. And this will fall on your feet once you're starting exit conversations. 
And I just had a conversation with someone from Chartmogul earlier today. And he said a lot of people are signing up on short notice for Chartmogul just a year before they are considering an exit because they never track their metrics. I wouldn't recommend doing that. So start earlier, track your metrics, keep your business clean so you don't have to clean up the mess when you're approaching an exit. And the second point I would say, it's not just black and white. So it's not VC funded or bootstrapped. I mean, you are one proof that there are nuances and that you have different kind of options. I see a lot of VC funded founders seeing filing for insolvency as the only way out. That's not the case. And so having a plan B, C, D is great if you're just starting out, even if you just raise a seed round and everything looks good. So these are the two things I would recommend to founders. That's a, a really, really helpful set of advice just to finish things on. Dirk, massive thank you for joining us today. Really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. Big, big thanks again to Dirk for coming on the pod today. Now, on to some of our lessons learned from this episode. Lesson number one. When raising funding, valuation determines the future optionality of your company, so choose it wisely. Think of valuation as a present value that reflects the future expectations that an investor has of your business. You might well sell your business for a billion dollars one day, but very few actually get there. You should avoid a situation where the only way you personally make money is by achieving that massive outcome. Do some research on historical exits in your space, look at the revenue multiples that were paid, and work backwards from there. Being conservative may hurt now, but will create much stronger alignment with your investors at exit and the highest likelihood of a good outcome for everyone. Lesson number two. There is no one-size-fits-all for startup exits, and you certainly don't need to grow to the size where an IPO or nine-figure trade sale is possible in order to achieve one. In fact, most M&A activity happens earlier for smaller figures, and buyers within that range can often move a lot quicker than the larger ones. You might not realize that if you have a million dollars in ARR and a break-even, an exit is probably already possible if you want one. Don't close your mind to these options because you might be surprised what you find. And finally, lesson number three, build your business for an exit. Dirk rightly pointed out that many businesses don't keep good documentation, nor do they track metrics very well, and that creates friction during the exit process. Following best practices with both of these will make your company easy to audit and will save you a lot of grief down the line. That's it from us today. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you in the next one. Fully vested.